Thank you for tuning in to the Season 2 finale of Character Build with special guest Connie Chung. A reminder that some topics and themes may not be suitable for all audiences. We have a detailed content warning in our episode description. I also strongly encourage you to follow along with our glossary of terms, also found in the episode description. Enjoy the show! Thank you for listening to Character Build, folks. This is the season finale of season two. I'm so excited about the guests that we have today. Please, everyone, give a warm welcome to Connie Chong. Connie, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Kyle. Yeah, uh, it is an absolute pleasure and honor to be on. Uh, I am Connie. My pronouns are they, he, and she. Uh, I can dive right into my little intro spiel if you'd like, or you can save that for later. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. We usually do that at the end, but please uh, let the folks know who you are. Introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am uh, a game master, an actual play performer. I'm also a game designer. You might know me from Transplaner RPG, which is uh, an all transgender, people of color led, dark fantasy actual play channel set in an original non colonial anti orientalist multiverse. I'm the game master and showrunner for that particular channel. I'm also the writer behind God Killer, which is a two player game for one player, the God Killer, and one game master, God. And I'm so excited to come onto this podcast and talk about building characters because I am nothing if not a tiny little slut for all kinds of horrible, horrible little meow meows and blorbos. So very oh, excited to talk it. character. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. All of it. Can't wait to get into that, into Transplaner, into God Killer. Holy smokes. I, I feel like a good jumping off point is just kind of, I don't know, leveling with you on where we're both at. Uh, uh, the end of the Adventuring Academy that you appear on with Brennan Lee Mulligan, you know, a question is asked by somebody on the discord that kind of harkens to this podcast of like, okay, what do we put our into the characters that we create that are parts of ourselves intentionally, unintentionally. And your answer was uh, something like an emotionally unavailable uh, muscular butch woman. <laughs> I just wanted to level with you and say, I'm kind of of the same, like I'm my level is charismatic, anxious, androgynous person fleeing from their grief any chance they get. So uh, just to let you know where I'm at, and now we know where each other are at. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> characters are nothing if not tiny little homunculi versions of ourselves that we place at the table and have them interface with other people's tiny little homunculi. So I think they really reveal a lot about how we see ourselves and how we think others might perceive us as well, slash Absolutely. how we would like to be perceived. That's, yeah, wow. And there, all of those different things can happen subconsciously or very intentionally. Uh, mm -hmm. And over the season, we've been talking about character death, character grief, uh, 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 just identity itself. Um, and I think a lot of what we're talking about today will culminate this very academic take on these subjects uh, that we've mm -hmm. been tackling all season. Uh, so I, I, I'd love, you know, I typically ask my guests for a background. Your background is well documented over a lot of other podcasts. So I want to please feel free to share anything, but I really wanted to especially ask you about your background in poetry, because I realized that you start, you know, I'm in the middle of arc one right now of Transplaner, and you start every episode with uh, an excerpt or a phrase of poetry. And I'm really, I've been really taken yeah. by that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Are you on the second stranger or the chaos protocol? I'm on the second stranger. I'm very early in my, <laughs> in my. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's, I'm almost a little, I'm always a little embarrassed whenever people are like, oh my God, I've started listening to the second stranger. And I'm like, really? Because we like did not have good mics. <laughs> like the first couple of arcs. Like I was still in some ways, 
you know, we, we never did, but I was in some ways running it a bit more by the books. Mm. Um, whereas I think really toward the middle of it, I really started to let go and grow into my own as a GM, but enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> it is a wild one. It's a chaotic one. Our mics only just get better from there. I promise. I um, can't wait. <laughs> but in terms of my a poetic background. Yeah, that was always a core part of starting Transplaner. When thinking about ways to differentiate ourselves from other APs, from like a marketing perspective, but also from like a genuinely creative and artistic perspective, thinking about what it is that makes my voice and my style as a GM and facilitator unique. Um, it's, I think, my very poetic approach to storytelling um, in the context of GMing a game, right? Like I am always I, uh, my partner shared with me a TikTok the other day that someone stitched, uh, stitched one of the TikToks I did that I put up on my account. And it was one of like my, uh, I introduced a villain. Uh, she's hot as hell, right? Like a really hot fire butch, eight foot tall woman. Like we love her. We support hell women's yes. wrongs, right? And like the way I described her, um, uh, oh my God, I'm such a bad, it's been so long since I've actually studied poetry. It's a rhetorical device. Starts with an M. If any of any of the listeners can identify it before I pull up Google and I'm forced to Google it myself. Um, but it's basically when you when you introduce something and then you reframe it, you like recontextualize it. Um, it's not Melanoe. That's Zagreus's sister in the East. It's not Melanoe. That is not not the not the name of the rhetorical device. But basically, this person stitching me was like, "Oh, what Connie's using here is this rhetorical device, this poetic mm. device, where she's like reframing the introduction of this um, uh, of this uh, physical element, right?" Uh, I I think the exact phrase I'd use was like, "And then you see that she this character is limbed by light, no, not light, fire." And then I go on to describe the flames uh, in a pretty like environmentally devastating way uh and that's just stuff that i do like constantly and i think like organically because that's just how i see the world and how i like to tell stories like i enjoy employing metaphors similes synecdoches all the okies and emilies and greek okay. <laughs> root phrases uh in terms of rhetorical devices and poetic devices and literary devices um there was a, a phase in my life where i really thought i was going to be a novelist where i was going to just like write books um and then i kind of moved east of that you know went towards screenwriting really started studying story from a structural you know and, and form based perspective uh but i there's a part of me that is always so deeply invested in just language and to me that's kind of what my approach to poetry is it's like exploring language twisting it breaking it bending it inverting it and as a chinese diasporic person also injecting my own cultural lens to that um transformation uh of language right like i uh, have recently started using ta ta da pronouns for specifically Chinese characters um, in the Chaos Protocol, right? Like who are non-binary in some way, because um, all of my characters are non-binary and trans. Like all of them, <laughs> all of our trans Hell in some yeah. way. Every Force single character going. in the Transplanerverse <laughs> is trans, unless otherwise stated. In which mm. case, it would be very very obvious <laughs> who right. the cis people are. <laughs> um, so I think it's just a really core part of who I am and how I see the world and how I tell stories. You know, it does make you stand out, uh, uh, even in those early episodes with the less than amazing mics, but still, still fine. Uh, the, <laughs> well, the poetry does. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, the poetry does make you stand out. 
And so regarding Transplanter RPG, even in the few episodes that I've listened to, and you know, you just talked about like the light, no, the fire and how you, you know, you're devastating narratives because they are devastating. The ones that I've heard that kind of goes back to that adventuring Academy answer of like your villains are forces, you know, they're forces or in some way they're forces. And just the way you characterize that, you're also really keen on characterizing, or you're, you're really good at characterizing uh, communities. Like in episode five, the Hoofbright clan, I know you're asking, I'm asking you to go way, way back to the beginning. Oh, the Hoofbright clan. Yes, we just, love those little, little guys. <laughs> but just like the way, like once they're saved and the way that you, you know, you didn't like, ooh, all of them. It was like, some of them are really cute, but some of them were like, you just diversified them so thoroughly when you explained them to your players. And I really appreciated how you essentially uh, mm. like, characterized an entire community in a few sentences, like someone would do with one person. So I guess I, I'd love, I would love to hear about your take on, on, cause it starts with the individual, right? But when it comes to GMing, I'm a GM as well. Uh, you have to be able to communicate what an entire city is or an entire community is about. And in just a few sentences while trying to remain nuanced. I'd love your take on that or need to speak on that a little bit. Yeah, I think a lot of that honestly comes from my my screenwriting perspective. There's this idea pretty early on of like different different scopes when you're writing and describing something. Like when you're trying to physically visually describe something, uh, thinking about the camera, right, and like thinking about where we are situated in space, right. Mm -hmm. uh, when I describe a city, I always think about it from like a really high high level perspective first. Like here are the major landmarks. Like we're kind of floating above it. We have a bird's eye view, and then I and then I like to funnel down to like the the like microscopic almost like follow the bead of sweat flying off of like a child's face as they're running down the street and now we're a street view right now we've pulled out running down the street in this neighborhood now we've pulled out even more right as the clouds pan over and now we're absolutely right right back on a macro view so i think a lot of what makes describing spaces places and groups of people dynamic is shifting the lens of that i think a lot of gms uh sometimes just focus on one uh, area of scope, like they only ever describe the big things or they only ever describe just like the singular. So I think that a way to add dynamicism and a way to like inject dimension to your descriptions is to think at like different levels of scope. Um, and that's something for me that works for describing groups of people is the overall sense. Because it's really interesting when you like, from a sociological perspective, when you look at and think about crowds, as humans, we operate differently we're, when we're in a crowd. There's some something in yeah. our brains. It's kind of like whatever turns crickets uh, into locusts. Something <laughs> like something, a switch is flipped or something when a crowd grows to be like, there's a specific threshold, right? And then we now work as a mob. That's kind of how mob mentality works mm -hmm. in, right? So you can characterize a group of people who are like maybe angry uh, and like storming through the streets as like a big, like a single entity almost, right? And this is kind of where group dynamics play in. But then like, I think to complexify it uh, and deepen that portrayal, it's helpful to like uh, focus on a couple of people in the crowd. So this happens quite often when I do like my big intro spiels or when I describe a place for the first time and there are lots of people there, I'll do like an overall description and then I'll focus on maybe two to three people in the crowd who the goal is to make them as different from each other as possible to show the different faces of the crowd, right? So if it's a market square, then I'll focus on like a merchant someone uh buying something and then someone who's like totally apart from it either like a thief uh or like a, a gutter snipe of some sort right or like uh a, a secret monster who's like hiding in the fold or something like that right just to like really flesh out the different dimensions the social dimensions as well um 
And I think like <laughs> when we talk about monstrosity, actually, because I brought up the idea of a monster, um, it's important to me that when I'm world building on a multiversal level, uh, of course, I love doing freaky little characters, like little robotic characters, <laughs> characters who don't look uh, human in some way, right? Characters who are just like piles of slime, right? Very like men in black, right? Like yeah. characters who like have very, uh, to us, distinctly alien features in some way, shape or form. But, and that's fun for me. I do enjoy that. I enjoy just like making a slime minotaur robot, right? That's fun. That's cool. <laughs> I could yeah. do that all day. But something else that's also really important to me is to portray a diverse, vivid, complex range of like actual people and specifically like uh black and brown indigenous asian people i think there's a lot of power in claiming mm, our humanity on a multiversal level so like yes this like sky regent of this far-flung plane is a black man <laughs> you know and i think there's something really yeah. powerful in being able to describe that and see that right like oh this um character who's known as like the most powerful hero that this uh kingdom has ever known is a disabled asian woman right like i think there's a deep power in that sometimes more so than if they were like a slime minotaur robot you know what i mean uh, so it's also important yeah. to me that people do look like um recognizable people uh, while also pushing the boundaries of what a person could be Absolutely. Well, and just to, to comment really quickly on what you were originally saying, I love the idea of like the wide establishing shot, kind of, you know, thinking like a camera when you're explaining things. Mm -hmm. I love that. But to get specific, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of pushing the boundaries of how how fantastic like can I get or how specific can I get while also maintaining that air of familiarity for my players to keep them involved, because that's really important is to keep, you know, to keep them uh, uh, invested in your story. And I think that's, that's a fab, that's fabulous. I just, what a great way to think about it, that, that kind of, it, it, it kind of encapsulates, you know, part of your introduction to transplaner without using so many terms, it kind of encapsulates mm -hmm. how you move towards the solution as a move toward, as opposed to moving away from the problem in your lecture series on the transplaner RPG, your YouTube channel you know, you talk about, you know, you know, in order to understand a non-Orientalist or or, or anti-Orientalist and non-colonial, you have to understand the the base term before you add that that negative mm -hmm. on top of it. So I feel like what you just said sort of adds that negative and then runs away from that negative towards what you actually should be doing. So I really appreciate that. Uh, um, and I'll you know I'll for our audience I'll be I can unless you want to really get into those I can certainly uh, uh, define those two deeper mm -hmm. at the beginning of the episode because i want to make sure everyone understands what we're talking about when it comes to a non-colonial anti-orientalist world and and you know, doing your best to build on that now actually i would like to pick your brain for a moment if that's okay sure absolutely and, and so when it comes to like the lecture series you were talking a little bit about and i only have listened to a few the first few but mm -hmm. you talked about the difference between decolonizing and non-colonial where if you're not actively mm -hmm. doing the work to dismantle those systems, then it's not necessarily decolonizing. I'm, I, you know, I think about my second ever homebrew world, which, which my first had a lot of, we get better as we go, right? My second was a lot more nuanced and it was very class-based, but there was still an air of like, you know, elves were in charge and orcs, sure. though extremely academic in my world, were kind of looked down on by the humans and the half elves and the elves, the people mm -hmm. who look like the most humanoid or whatever. Uh, 
the white people actually but uh <laughs> you know where, where gnomes sort of had some power but you know they my point is you know, i was at a private table with five white players so i mm. i it's it's i guess the difference between making sure you're being non-colonial anti-orientalist or i'm wondering if there's merit in 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 those private moments right where it's like i'm going to be introducing this as an idea uh, but but the colonialism and the classism is the villain and the five of you have to grapple mm-hmm. with that because none of you actually grapple with that in their real life these were five close friends of mine and much like myself none of us did so i guess just introducing those ideas from the jump by characterizing them i suppose i wonder if, i think you talk a little bit about that but i'm wondering uh what your thoughts on that are yeah i i do i have several thoughts on that one yeah. is uh when it comes to private home games, I personally like just on a completely personal level, as opposed to like yeah. a professional or academic or artistic level, I literally don't care what people do in their home yeah. games, like For because sure. I can't control that and it doesn't affect me, right? It's like your it's your private thing that you do, right? Like what you do is between you and your table and yeah. God, <laughs> like whatever you want to do, like that's whatever. Yeah. I'm not here to police what you do what you can do what you can't do uh that's not where my politics lie where my politics come in are like asking questions of why and how right so like why is it important to you uh to deconstruct colonialism and racism in your private home game with uh an all-white table right and that's that is a question i pose without judgment you know what i mean that is a question i just i simply pose right and you know, I think your answer to that can be very illuminating about then how you decided to move forward with that or not. Also, my cat is here. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Obviously, podcast listeners can't see, but maybe you heard him come up. Uh, his name is Mr. <laughs> no, Bow-Bow. very silent, very roguish. Uh, incredible. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's a fluffy little rogue. Uh, but yeah, that would be my first, my first response, I think. Sure. My second response, and this is just kind of my like general approach toward this sort of gaming, uh, that I've developed after like years of doing work adjacent to it, uh, which is this idea of games as a learning tool or an educational tool, right? Specifically like tabletop role playing games. Um, when we talk about, you know, the age old question of like, can a white DM or a white player play a character of color, right? This is like an age old question that's sure. <laughs> been discoursed to hell and back in so many different iterations. It's like one of those perennial questions that comes up on Twitter every like every couple months. Um, And I think that question comes from one of two places. The first place is educational, which is like, oh, if I'm like a white player, I kind of want to play a character who's brown or black or Asian or indigenous to like learn what that struggle is like and to like gain a bit more empathy. You know, that's usually another word that comes up to gain empathy to those struggles um, or to like just like educate myself on what that's like. And the other approach is like, I just want to. Right. And that could fall into like one of several categories. One is this person is actually like actively fetishizing (laughs) that other race. This tends to be like the Mm -hmm. otakus who want to play their like Asian samurai characters without even knowing what they're doing (laughs) at all in any way, shape or form. Or they like they feel like they hyper know what they're doing because they have like a degree in Japanese studies and they've been to Kyoto and they've been to Tokyo, you know, and they're like, weird, you know, like I've yeah, met a lot yeah. of those people. They always want to talk to me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not fucking Japanese. My dude, I don't know what you <laughs> want to say to me. I'm not Japanese. me right now. <laughs> yeah. Literally, literally. So that's, <laughs> yeah. 
in the I just want to do it camp, that's one of the subcategories of that camp. And another subcategory is like, I just think it's cool. Like I'm a white, like, should I only be allowed to play white people if I'm a white person? That feels weird, right? That's another question. That's another consideration, right? So here's how I feel about all of that. One is the question yet again. If you're a white person and you're wanting to play a character of color, why? Like why, right? Uh, and then if it's edu, if the reason is educational, then my response is I actually don't think tabletop role-playing games are a great way to teach yourself empathy about racism. I actually think they're one of the worst ways to do it because there's no, there's actual no, there's no academic support. Um, the only person facilitating everything is like one person, is like a, the GM, and they may or may not be a critical race studies scholar, right? They may or may not actually have the training and the education needed to facilitate those conversations and facilitate those stories. Like I am an actual critical race studies scholar and right. i don't feel equipped to run a game that deconstructs racism uh because that's not something i would want to do with my time it would as a person of color i think it would traumatize me <laughs> uh, and i just know myself i'm like mm, i don't think i want to do that right yeah um very fair yeah so that's that's my response it's it's not to say it can't be done I have seen specifically tables of people of color who want to explore themes of racism as a cathartic way of like punching the Nazi, right? Or like being like, you know, oh, there are elf supremacists. We're playing a bunch of goblins who kill all the racist elves, right? Uh, you know, as a form of catharsis or as a form of like uh, making sense of the racism you experience in day-to-day -day life, right? And claiming some sort of power uh, in like imagination that you are robbed in real life like i think there is there is some value and merit to that right um whether or not i would encourage it for actual play or streaming i'm not sure because i think i think it is often done but rarely done well and we see this in media beyond tabletops right we see this in media constantly media that tries to be metaphors for racism and colonialization right and colonization i mean like avatar uh the fucking zootopia bright i you know it's just all of these fantasy speculative mm -hmm. fictions uh, that try to tackle racism or oppression through metaphor almost always like 9.9 .9 times out of 10 fail because of like a plethora of reasons right and those are scripted those are scripted stories that have had time to be workshopped and edited so like what makes you think your table <laughs> unscripted with people who are not educated in this and have like no academic you know background in in any of this uh will be able to handle this with nuance in a way that won't re-expose your players if they are players of color to trauma or like reinforce racist ideas that you're trying to dismantle right because if you're acting and portraying a racist what you actually do is you access that part of yourself that is, you know, yes. and like you, yeah. you, you bring it to the table because part of performance theory that I believe in is this idea of like full embodiment, right? Um, this idea that you cannot portray something that is not already a part of you for, for good, for bad, and just for neutral reasons, right? For example, if I were to play a tiger on a stage, then a part of me is a fucking tiger, right? I'm bringing the actual tiger out. I'm embodying it. I'm embodying what I think a tiger is. I'm embodying the tiger that is within me, right? Uh, which I think means that if you're embodying a racist, then you are feeding the parts of yourself, right? That are racist, you know, the subconscious mm. biases, you know, those things. And, you know, which isn't to say you, you can't do that, but just be careful, be careful, yeah. right? And the, the ways you do it could end up hurting more than helping. So that is my response to the educational side of things. 
to the side of things where people are like, I just want to do it because it seems cool, like slash, I don't really know, I just want to do it. Like it feels weird to only play white people. I would agree. It does feel weird to only play white people if you're white, right? Like there is something, it's kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like if I just play white people and I just stay in my lane, then like, then I'm only playing white people. And the only characters that I bring to the table, especially if you are a visible performer, are white, right? It's not very diverse. I would say if you are a visible actual play performer, who is a player? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that if there was going to be a PC of color, it should go to a player of color, like, especially if it's for like a big gig, you know, then otherwise yeah. play a tree, play a robot, whatever, right? That tree you're playing is still white. You can play, play a white a tree. <laughs> yeah, you can play a white, tr like literally, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you can play yes. a white robot, right? That's fine. Um, when it comes to GMs, that's different, I think, especially if you're For a white sure. GM, because the GM, you portray every single other character in the world. So I think it's not a matter of, of can you, it's you, sh you should and how, right? I think you, as a GM, even if you're white, you should portray characters that are non-white and just like put a lot of thought and care into how you portray them, right? I think it does become quite obvious when a white GM only does white NPCs. And maybe the reasoning is like, oh, I, I, w I wouldn't feel comfortable. I'd feel like overstepping. I'm like, no, because you are the world, right? And if you only give, like, if the only plot crucial NPCs are white, that kind of sucks. That feels kind of shitty, right? And yeah. like, that's something that any GM can do, no matter the kind of table you're playing at, right? Or facilitating, whether it's a home game with like all white players, right? Or like a streamed game with a more diverse table. Um, that's kind of where I'm at <laughs> in terms of that conversation. Sure, no, I appreciate that. That goes further than what I've even thought about. So that uh, I appreciate you sharing that with my listeners because I think that opens up a whole nother avenue of like looking at parts of yourself and playing with certain parts of yourself but also unlearning certain parts of yourself because that's just the work we have to do today's episode is supported by argle a sci-fi anthology series set in the not so distant future created by felicia dominguez and t hoida each season of Oracle is a new story season two transmission is a collection of intertwined stories about loss, loneliness, and love. We have the season two trailer for you right now. For more, visit oraclethepodcast.com. That's A-U-R-I-C-L-E, thepodcast.com. You can find and listen to all of season one and two of Oracle anywhere you listen to podcasts. Are you there? I think I'm getting something. Why are you recording? For science. Did you hear that? We're a little off schedule. Maybe it's the aliens. I'm studying electromagnetic phenomena and anomalies. I don't think losing people is scary. I just don't want to do it anymore. Just together with me. Radio check. Who's this? I didn't do it. You never do anything. We should still be secure. Are you safe? The walkies again. Who are you? Comfort. I am not doing it on purpose. You can't bullshit! I am not doing it on purpose! Stop! Stop! Oh god! I don't like this. I don't like this. What the hell was that? I'm not supposed to know that. We're supposed to be innocent. I feel an ending coming. Oracle, a sci-fi anthology podcast set in the not-so-distant future.
Season 2, Transmission, available in bi-monthly episode releases starting July 1st, 2023. Or listen now to Season 1, Iris, wherever you get your podcasts. I guess this is a good transition to you know something else you said in that lecture series about that, that Volo's quote about orcs and uh, you know how they're savages because they you know kill to please Grumsh their god. I think subliminally that like ideas like that have actively made me sort of repellent towards any established pantheons. And like I'm like home mm-hmm. like the idea of homebrewing gods or just taking the idea at its baseline and running with it, doing your own thing. And uh, I'd love to jump into God Killer, which is something that you've yeah. wholly created. Uh, uh, first, uh, off the bat, I gotta, I gotta give you a compliment. The end of episode one is is just nasty. That, that when Obino Bobino Caro comes in, and it's like just so cinematic. I, I just, I was like, ah, 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 like listening <laughs> to it. So I, I compliment you there. And uh, 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 would love to hear a little bit about God Killer. How I, you know, I've, I've purchased the game. I've looked at it. It's extensive in a really beautiful way. I'd love to hear kind of about the inception of that before we dive into mechanics or how to play. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I would say that a quick tangent before we get into God Killer. It is God related. I wanted to respond to something you said about how you've shied away from creating pantheons because of um, the. Uh, the canon D&D's various settings approach to Pantheon building. Um, I don't fault you. I, Transplaner's multiversal approach was initially inspired by Planescape. Um, Like there are various different kinds of planes, right? Like, and the different alignments attached to each plane. Uh, There was something that really tickled my ADHD brain about categories. Like I like, I like sorting stuff into other things. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, this fits here, that fits there. And how would this fit into here? Yeah, I liked the lists. I liked how um, structured it felt. But you know, the more I did the world building, the less sense it made. (laughs) And I think when we talk about um, pantheons and gods in D&D, we also talk about morality because they're tied, right? Alignment is tied to godhood in some way, right? Um, What's his face? Uh, Bahamut is lawful good. Loth is something evil, right? (laughs) Like Grumsh is something evil. There are some chaotic and neutral, what have you. And that's always been really interesting and weird to me that like divinities just people in general could have inherent prescriptive moralities which is also why i've just completely done away with the alignment system in mm-hmm. it even from the beginning of the second stranger uh, and definitely for like any of our stuff moving forward it just feels very restrictive and like a honestly a really white supremacist way of thinking about morality it feels really puritan um that there could even be categories <laughs> uh that could that could have hard hard defined lines that people could fit into right and that yeah, that's just bizarre to me. Um, it's just not how I see the world at all, even as as a as someone with a Buddhist background, right? Um, so I also love gods. I love pantheons, and that's part of the inspiration for God Killer. Uh, but my love of gods and divinity and you know questions of monstrosity, humanity, and godhood don't come from a Christian place or even like a catholic place even though i think catholic imagery slaps like stained glass windows yes like (laughs) stigmata wounds yes like there's like (laughs) there's just some imagery some visuals i will poach that yes i will fetishize catholicism (laughs) give that to me please yes (laughs) i went to like half a year of catholic school listen i feel like maybe i've earned my stripes uh so funny during ash wednesday they were like they came up to me and i was like actually i'm an atheist (laughs) 
yeah that's a whole story that we don't have to Oof. get into um yeah uh, <laughs> we don't have to get into that uh i always say i don't have catholic guilt and then my partner always looks at me like what i i'm not gonna question you on that but say what you want to say um, half a year anyway. has done enough damage yeah <laughs> half a year did enough damage right let's not worry about the fact that my mom is a fundamentalist christian uh let's not unpack that right let's not anyway yeah anyway right but you know my father and my sister are in some ways buddhist right and there's you know the whole chinese thing anyway so when it comes to pantheon building for god killer in particular to me godhood represents so many different things that cannot be cleanly or surgically separated from my queerness uh this idea of divinity not as a standard of perfection, uh, but as something, <laughs> something beyond the material world, uh, something that transcends and is also so deeply, intimately intertwined with more mortality, right? Um, I think there is divinity in top surgery. I think there is divinity in fucking a monster. I think there is divinity in accepting all the flawed, broken, sharp, horrible parts of yourself and choosing to love yourself alongside them regardless, right? And to me, it's a kind of like reclamation outside of like the, the Christian, right? Ideas of what divinity is and who gets to have access to those kinds of ideals of power. And speaking of power, divinity is also power to me, right? Um, a lot of what God the core the core question at the heart of god killer isn't are you strong enough to kill a god it's will you kill this god or will you spare them or will you do something else it's what will you do with the power that you have been cursed and blessed with right the god killer as a mm, player character and also as a mythological figurehead within the mythos of the, the god killer game itself is an agent of change that's it that's all you are you're an agent of change, but you must change. There is no way to play or be a neutral god killer. Every single mechanic forces you to make decisions that will change the world around you. Um, there's no way you can play the game and interact with the rules without transforming the world in some way, or yourself, or both. No way. Uh, that was like, and if there were a way to do that, then I have failed <laughs> in my in my attempt to design this game. And to me, change is also deeply queer it's trans right what is to me being trans but becoming an active participant in my own becoming right whether that's a physical modification or even just like an internal spiritual connection with myself and my own gender i am constantly as a gender fluid person also like in flux with my own relationship and my understanding of my presentation and my gender and that feels divine to me and that feels very mortal and that feels very god killer as well so i also just like making fucked up gods uh <laughs> i was really inspired by the raven towers approach to pantheon building by uh and lucky i don't know if you've heard of the text or have no. read it it's a novel it's basically like a fantastical retelling of hamlet or was it othello no it's hamlet uh and uh but it's set in a world where there are gods you know and like gods are active agents in the world it's really dope actually i highly recommend it, sounds, it. really wonderful sounds text. Sick. it's got some really cool it's a big inspiration for god killer actually in terms of how 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 gods are named and how they act um 
I was also really inspired of all things by Mad Max Fury Road. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a, it's uh, a great movie. Hell yeah. It's a fantastic <laughs> movie. It's my favorite Mad Max movie. Um, and the specific like post-apocalyptic Australian, <laughs> right? But like the kind of like uh, irradiated feel of it and the high octane feel of it as well. That there are these people who are, you know, the idea of a cannibal god, these gods who will cannibalize each other. And what does that make their worshipers, right? How does that affect how their followers act, right? If you're eating each other for power, right? It's going to be a, a war heavy, bloodthirsty world, right? Or it could be a different kind of world depending on the cradle you make. Because it was also important to me that there was enough stuff for you to start world building, but it was, there was enough negative space right the fertile negative space for anyone to just pick up the text and imagine their own version of the cradle right i've had a lot of people reach out to me like telling me about their version of the cradle there are people basing it off of like the chinese plus western zodiac you know there are people who are basing it off of like the various different uh, planets right of the solar system and obviously in god killer first blood which is the official podcast companion to the ashcans release it's based off of the uh, major arcana in tarot uh the, right. the god's of, of my cradle in that world um so i'll hit pause there because <laughs> i feel like i said a lot <laughs> <laughs> no that's outstanding and i i really relate to the divinity of queerness and you know a, a favorite musician of mine uh, has this quote about like to be a queer is to be unlimited because of how many times you have to change in order to how many times you have to change also that you have to make the choice to change mm -hmm. who you currently are who you currently feel like you are or who you are currently perceived as by the world and uh, you know making those changes sort of opens that up so i really i dig that idea of it being divine uh i also dig the idea of fucked up gods like you talk about you know being able to customize your own cradle uh as sort of um as sort of like an easter christmas swinger presbyterian growing up the seven deadly sins comes to mind for me. Like, yeah. like, like I would make each sin and maybe even each um, of the opposing of the sins. I can't remember what they're the called. The virtues, right? The virtues. I'd make each sin and each virtue their own God. And, and then, you know, yeah, really that's like, sexy. <laughs> yeah. And then like, like the virtues aren't inherently good and the sins aren't inherently bad because that gets into the mm -hmm. idea of like the morality is, is, is you, you can't like one of them is not dark and one of them is not light. That's not how it works. It's not heaven and hell, mm -hmm. you know? So I have a really specific idea of how I want to use God killer at some point. And now I'm just filling my own cradle with these own ideas. So I, I love how customizable it is. I also love how specific it is because in the text of God killer in the PDF uh, of the Ashcan, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I have like, there is like, like dialogue bits between you and C who are the two who play yes. in, in God killer play examples. Yes. Yes. And so are those ripped directly from the actual episodes? No, uh, those are actually from an earlier home game uh, oh, wow. that we've played. I didn't record them, but I basically yeah. remembered how we played it and used those as play examples. Um, the play examples are not actually from God Killer First Blood because we recorded that after the game came out. But a lot of what happens in those play examples actually happened in like an offline private home game that we played. That's incredible. Uh, just bringing sort of those real world examples of something that happened mm -hmm. in these mechanics to that. Yeah, it's so cool. It's it's so vast. I love the character sheet layout too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, speaking of something that's sexy, I think that's sexy. It almost looks like a gate, like a video game pause screen. Yeah, that's how sick it looks. It's just it's so specific of what you're, uh, you know, of what you're. I'm actually, I'm gonna take a look at it and just ask you about a couple of phrases here. Sure oh, thing. I am um, my layout artist Amber Seeger 
made yeah. uh laid out the game and also did the um the character sheet and i i for the character sheet i drew a mock-up of what i wanted it to be but i'm not an artist so sure, it was yeah, very much sure. like baby's first stick figure that i mm, showed amber and amber's mm -hmm. like okay i like did something <laughs> actually good with it right no i i relate there yeah uh, uh as a as like a as a hopeful filmmaker you know my my storyboards are certainly very ryan johnson of like okay here's a stick figure <laughs> and then here's a further away stick figure yeah so not my uh wheelhouse if you will i'm curious actually for some reason this struck me i'm curious about specific and we're really kind of getting hyper specific here but mm -hmm. um the uh the health the sort of the health module you call it strain is that correct strain yes I'd love to, I'd love to hear how you can, cause you know, hit points is like the obvious one that, you know, all mm -hmm. video games and other things have. There's, there's other, other ways to do it as well, but strain is such a specific word. Uh, I'd, I'd love yeah. to hear about that. Yeah. Every word uh, of, of every subsystem uh, was chosen with deep intention and care. Like strain went through many different iterations, stress, mm -hmm. damage, harm, health, heart, blood, like all these different words were words I considered and more, more, I'm sure. I have like 10 different drafts of this game in my drive, <laughs> right? Uh, I ultimately ended up on strain and I ultimately it was between strain and stress and I chose strain. Um, so to me, strain, this um, health bar basically for lack of a better term had to do right. several things. One, it had to be holistic. So it couldn't just be physical. It also had to talk about just the overall well-being of the player character right yeah. so their physical state as well as their mental state their spiritual state their emotional state like their magical state as well um and there were earlier iterations of the text where i played with different different trackers so a physical tracker for like your, your actual physical health bar basically and like a magical tracker to see how you were doing spiritually and maybe like a tracker for your mental state right like and there are games and systems that do that um yeah. like that have different health bars basically for different things that you could track and mark but ultimately i decided to just like simplify it um for many reasons from a purely mechanical standpoint it didn't make sense uh to have more than just one tracker it was just it was just introduced like two additional subsystems that i didn't want to design other systems sure. to support it for <laughs> right I, I was it was a way of cutting um excess material that wouldn't have fed the story strain also had to do something else which was feel thematic so stress Stress felt a little anachronistic. Stress felt a little modern, the word itself. Like, oh, I'm really stressed right now, you know? And it also felt a little too mental, right? You can gain physical stress, uh, but it felt a little too immediate, a little too, I don't wanna say pedestrian <laughs> because that feels really judgmental, but a little a little too like day-to-day. -to -day. Strain felt like something you could see in a, in a divine text, right? The strain of godhood, the strain and the burden of it, the strain of divinity, right? It's strain, it also feels active. You're straining against yourself, right? So those were, that was another reason why, um, why I use the word strain. Um, and in God Killer, you, you can get hit literally physically and mark strain and you can also get hit emotionally right i think i put in the text like you can mark strain by like discovering that you've been betrayed by someone you once like felt 
very attached to and like boom marker blocks there and that takes cues and that's like tech from like many different kinds of systems like i think blaze yeah. in the dark does that actually that i'm not i don't think that's true masks does it but instead of having strain boxes they have specific um conditions you have to mark whenever you're hit hard um and the conditions are tied to emotions that was another thing i thought about including was like specific ways of mechanizing emotional responses but in the end i decided not to do it um because just based on like I've run a lot of masks and I've also played a lot of masks and I think that's fine for a one shot, but it, it's maybe, uh, but it, it becomes kind of like one note after a while. And I wanted to be expansive about the kinds of strain that people could mark. I, I like the compositing of it. It's simple, but somehow more human, like more mm -hmm. just high stakes. It almost remind it. It's funny because it, it, it loops back into like a more fantastical and obviously more, you know, a populous system of DD with psychic damage like does the same kind of hp damage that slashing or fire does mm -hmm. it's all there but in a much more real way of like obviously a betrayal or grief those emotional blows can can hit that same that same sort of uh strain uh i really yeah that's great and uh, as you were talking I'm, I'm just sort of like looking through and and remembering some of the the god killer first blood someone who maintains this power who gets granted this power and this curse to kill the god uh and they get more and more powerful and they unlock other moves as they go you know, essentially getting closer to godhood in terms of how much power they wield you know has i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that sort of circle of like you know you get you get powerful enough to kill a god or multiple gods you know does that keep going and this is in god killer or just in general sort of the character journey of like the god killer becoming the god of sorts yeah that's really interesting uh the the core play loop of god killer is like i mentioned earlier isn't centered around the question of can you get strong enough to kill a god you've always been yeah. strong enough to kill a god you could kill a god mm. in the very first scene <laughs> that you pick up the game and play you could you Case literally could right <laughs> um it's about the consequences of your choices right so the play loop is you embark on a quest to confront a god Right. And then at that crucial point, you either kill them or you spare them or like a secret third thing. Maybe they flee, but that's, you know, that could be anticlimactic. But no matter the outcome, the world is changed by that action. Um, and it's in the, it's in how the move kill a god or spare a god re resolves. There is no way either of those moves can resolve without some massive change occurring. Uh, and then it's about grappling with the fallout of that, which will then like, spiral you and repel you to the next confrontation with the next god coming out of the corpse of the the previous one right uh yeah. so there's also stuff in like the gming section which i uh, this is a section i hope to expand in the full game which i'm fingers crossed i mean it's some talks some publishers about which is really exciting That's um great. stuff about like how to portray gods who have been spared right and what is their attitude toward the god Whoa. killer after that right yeah. it's like are they genuinely grateful or are they secretly resentful and will like now work against the god killer right and then there's also like stuff about how to design the fallout of a god that's been slain you know because if you kill a god of war you might think oh great then people are going to stop fighting each other or if you miss on the move the <laughs> does does their death cause a fucking huge explosion that then like like puts a curse on the entire area that they once protected right there's like infinite things you could do uh with the resolutions of these moves that will like continue to propel the story forward and those moves were written with that specifically in mind 
it really feels like it too with the, with the D six rolls. Uh, I'm not sure if that changes throughout, but you know where like there are tiered successes, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they, you know the, the, if you if you do well enough, then you might be able to, uh, uh, might be able to maintain like the outward consequences. Obviously, those inward consequences are still there. That's the point. But I believe in like the, the second episode of the stream. Um, ruin the character. I'm not going to say which god they're fighting because that's a really lovely <laughs> little surprise. Um, they roll with like moderate success, like a, mm-hmm. like between a seven or a ten. And I just really appreciate that that those are all baked in in terms of like uh, it's, it's like rolling a fifteen in D and D for people who know D and D. It's like great. There should be those t- like tiered successes or or mm-hmm. successes with uh, with a cost that come at a cost. Like what yeah. are you giving up or what are you causing outwardly that you then have to grapple with? Uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of systems with um, graded tiers of success. D&D is binary. It's a pass-fail system, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. you, either mash, you either hit it or you don't. Uh, but in God Killer, as it is a PBTA game, uh, there are hits and misses. And there's also overkills. So usually in other PBTA games, if you get a 10 plus, that's extra good. Sometimes you even get like an extra bonus, like an extra like, yay, you did really wonderful. You like crit or something, right? Mm -hmm. And a six minus is usually known as a miss. And typically how PBTA games tend to handle it is the GM decides what happens next. Uh, I have like miss conditions, I think, on all of the moves that include roles, though. However, Uh, I've just found that to be um, more fun to design for and more fun to facilitate, to be honest. But a 10 plus is an overkill. So you're looking for, it's kind of almost like a, like a dial. You're looking to land right in the middle, like that's seven to nine, right? And the yeah. seven to nine result, what it actually ends up doing is giving the player a lot of agency in determining what happens next. Both the overkill and the miss give the GM uh, usually the lion's share of the agency. The overkill is interesting though, because it typically means you do get what you were doing, like what you were trying to do, but right. you go too far. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. if you're inflicting violence on someone, you kill them instead of just teaching them a lesson lesson. Right. Or like if it's um, uh, God, it's been a while since I've looked at my own rules, tempting fate. uh, You draw the attention of your enemies immediately. So you do it. You do it. It's usually you do it. But whereas the miss is like, you don't do it. And right. And the seven to nine is just you do it. Say how. Yeah, no, I, and I and I love those mechanics. The misconditions, uh, the graded scale. That's what I couldn't come. The phrase I couldn't come up with. The, uh, the graded scale, which I'm I'm constantly trying to make D and D more interesting, uh, or trying to convince my friends to just try a new system. You know, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to that, like something else that sort of is in the same spirit of this are the questions in your backgrounds, where you ask these really deep, thought provoking questions right off the bat of like, okay one of these three things is true about your character. Which one is it? And it almost reminds me of how you've talked about on other podcasts or other media about how you treat like a nat one, where you have those three conditions mm-hmm. on a failed saving throw and you you know, have to choose. But if you get a nat one, you are subject to all three. And one of them is emotional, but your characters and your players tend to not choose that one. They'll go for the damage or they'll go for the status effect as opposed to your really heart-wrenching questions. Yeah, the Connie questions. <laughs> the yeah. Connie questions, yeah. <laughs> so I just I, I just want to chat with you about about those questions and and how crucial they are like from the jump, like even from session zero, like getting really deep from the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. And that can help us get specific too. I mean, the origin questions, it's basically my way of doing like helping 
helping the player and the game master create a backstory. Like with any game, people can take it or leave it, right? They can use yeah. the rules that they want to use and discard the ones that they don't. Um, I have been in situations where I've run God Killer and been like, okay, I know I wrote this game, but we're only going to have to answer this one question. Or we didn't even look at the questions at all, and we just came up with a backstory. And then we looked at the origin, we were like, we actually organically answered all of these questions through us just talking and coming up with the backstory, right? Which also works. Uh, so those questions were written with um the average the normal right like the regular your regular player who yes. like might not like isn't aspiring to be like an ap performer like isn't like an actor they just they just like to play games right which is like super fucking valid right it was important to me to make it uh, mechanics accessible and rewarding for that kind of player right which is going to be like i think the most common kind of player in interacting Absolutely. with my game right and i didn't want it to just you know because there's there are versions of those questions that are going to be less fruitful um and those questions were workshopped they were edited they were devved uh, yeah. over and over and over again to make them like the the best questions they could be given given the restraints i had uh, so each one is supposed to very rigorously flesh out an aspect of the character right like yeah. and all three of them should feel different uh, and flesh out different parts of the god killer and create motivations for you if you're kind of struggling to come up with some right and create like maybe even a feel for the setting that you're in if you're struggling right it doesn't say the rules don't say how many sentences your answer has to be it's basically right. as much or as little as you feel inspired to do right some people could write like pages and pages answering just one of the questions and other people might just write like a sentence or two both are totally valid valid ways to respond to it and i don't like to prescribe how people react to my design um i just kind of like lay the toys down and see how people play um but i think there are ways to make the toys more fun to interact with versus less fun that all makes a lot of sense uh, you know and on character build here we try to appeal to uh all especially beginners i just you know, i want to make it mm -hmm. a, a really ungated space for people and i think that those questions are a great way to throw even just like the most beginner of people who aren't really comfortable with role play but want to mm -hmm. maybe try it a little bit in their home games uh, I think it just throws them in yeah. right off the bat. So that's exactly. I think there's I think there's a really never underestimate the power of a really well phrased question because yeah. there are versions of these questions that are all the same no matter the origin. It's it could be like, what's your name? What do you want? Where do you live? And a really good, experienced, what have you, but very creative GM and player might be able to make like a whole, like very thought out world. But like the average person is gonna take that and be like, okay <laughs> like yeah. this isn't exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly those aren't good questions those are bad questions right so there are right. there are ways to write questions that are more generative than others yeah no it's it's which is what it's all about just being you know promoting that that sort of generative thought-provoking uh creation when it comes to telling a collaborative story mm -hmm. uh, Connie, thanks for being thanks for being on the show this has been uh cool to just hear you kind of lecture honestly which is what i what i asked for <laughs> i'm like hey i'm gonna ask you a question please go off that's what i that's what i like here so uh, where can the I, I usually say where can the folks find you on the internet if you want to be found on the internet but i assume that you do beginning but what, what's going on with transplaner currently i think you're wrapping Heck up yeah. arc one of chaos right we are well yes i have been connie chong thank you so much for having me on kyle pronouns mm -hmm. they he and she uh i am at by connie chong everywhere uh namely twitter and tiktok and yes uh we are wrapping up arc one of transplaner rpg as of the recording of this but when you're listening to this 
arc one of the chaos protocol is done and we are mid hiatus so now is a wonderful time to jump into the chaos protocol which is our second main campaign on transplaner you don't need to have listened to our first main campaign to jump into our second you'll catch some easter eggs right but that'll that'll pretty much be it it's it's super super a uh, uh, newbie newbie transplaner friendly uh we are starting our stream of arc two in January, 2024. And we have VODs put up on our YouTube of arc one uh, under the chaos protocol at Transplaner RPG. We also have a podcast version. If you like um, very polished edited podcasts with background music and sound effects and whatnot uh, for full disclosure, all of our uh, stream episodes, VODs also have music in them because we have a live music uh, mixer, C Thomas, who is also our producer. So you're going to get to enjoy that as well. But if high fidelity, high quality audio is very important to you, then listen to our podcast instead. Um, but yeah, God Killers Ashcan is currently out on itch. It's a digital only Ashcan. It's PDF. It's 20 bucks. Uh, it's called God Killer First Blood. It's on my itch. It's at by Connie Chong as always. Uh, and like I mentioned during this interview, I'm currently talking with a couple publishers about creating the full version of God Killer. So if you want to stay hip, stay tuned to what that might look like, if you want to get like a delicious hardcover physical book edition of this game that's going to look beautiful and have expanded rules options and whatnot um then follow me on twitter because that's where i'm going to post about information about that at bygone chong back to you kyle wow thank you so much to do as much as i'm going to try actively to finish like all five arcs of the second stranger good to know <laughs> that me and other folks can just hop right in for yes for, you can like, and unfortunately great. kyle there are eight there are yeah eight oh arcs. boy it's okay, like 120 episodes yeah yeah <laughs> Well, but it's gotta, good. It's good. And like, I think we really hit our stride in arc three. I, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm halfway to arc three. So I'm excited. I'm excited to hit Excellent. the stride. Uh, well, yeah. Thanks again, Connie. This has been great folks. Thanks for listening. Uh, Character build season one and season two now available everywhere. You like to listen to podcasts. Holy smokes, folks. Season two in the bag. Thanks again to Connie Chong for coming on the show. Now, I wanted to give Connie credit for something that had happened that did not quite make the cut of the episode. At one point, I apologized for springing certain topics on Connie, and later on in the episode, he said, don't sweat it. This is brain-picking hour, and that they have no problem communicating their boundaries if it's something they don't want to talk about. Now, I think that's something that all of us should bring into our daily lives. Thanks for the openness, Connie. Be sure to go follow Connie Chung wherever you follow people on social media and definitely check out Transplaner RPG. We have plenty of time right now to listen to Arc 1 of Chaos Protocol before they come back in January with new episodes. And definitely get your copy of God Killer. The Ashcan is available online now. The music you're hearing right now was composed by Jonathan Charles and can be heard on the Chaos Protocol on Transplaner RPG. Be sure to give Jonathan Charles a follow on Instagram at the underscore lonely underscore orchestra. Show art for character build is, as always, created by Gabriella Ashley. A special thanks to everyone who is on the podcast and everyone who listened to the podcast in all of season two. I could not do this without your support. Thank you. Until next time.